Now, grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to um, Luke chapter 18. And let me read you something that is inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Um, I'm not. The sermon isn't. But this is. This is... um, This is the very mind of God, is black words on a white page. So you follow as I read this parable um, as we continue our our study of our series in parables. Here it goes, beginning at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God It endures forever. Guys, without a doubt, uh, the three most famous and the most beloved parables of all the parables that Jesus told are the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, and then this one. Probably in that order, too. And and I've saved those three for last. Uh, We have two more in front of us after this morning. Um, But one of the things that I found rather interesting is that those three parables, which are our favorites and the, most, the, the best known and the most loved, those three parables are found in a book that was written by a Gentile. Um, they're found no place else. Only Luke gives us those three parables, which are our favorites. And, and it caused me to wonder if, if someone, a Gentile, who, who saw himself as being um, really far from the kingdom, but having been brought in by the finished work of Christ, it, it, as if perhaps his heart is more tender towards the things of God than the rest of us who perhaps may not have ever seen ourselves as, um, as being that far off. Well, I, I, I don't know the answer to my, my uh, supposition, but um, uh, it'll, it'll give you something to ponder while we look at the parable. Um, What is this parable about? Well, I can tell you this. It's not about prayer, which one commentary that I read uh, tried to convince me that it it was a parable about prayer. Guys, just a cursory reading of this parable, um, you could tell, is it's not about... um, It's it's about something other than prayer. Verses 1 through 8 about prayer, but this is not about prayer. What is this about? What is this parable about? Well, um, let me put it like this. Do you know um, there's a question that we ask a lot around here? Um, It's called the second diagnostic question, and we we use it a lot. We, We ask this question a lot. It goes like this. Imagine you were to die tonight, and you stood before God, 
And God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What, what would you say? <laughs> this parable is about the answer to that question. It's a parable about two men who have completely different views of God. They have completely different views about themselves. And they have completely different views about how a man gets reconciled to God. How a man is saved. And, and those differences come to light in the way that they pray and in the things that they pray. Their, their prayers embody their, their, their views of themselves and their views of God. So we're going to take a look at that. And without further chit-chat, let's, um, let's, let's get to work. Guys, let's take a look at the Pharisee first. He, he, um, he's mentioned first in the parable. Uh, now, now remember this. Um, Jesus is using this man, this Pharisee, but he's not talking about just one man. He's not even talking about a group of men called Pharisees. He's talking about an approach. He's talking about a, a, a perception, a concept, a view, a position um, of, of how a man gets right with God. He's describing a position, and he's using this a Pharisee to illustrate a position, a, pres- a, a perspective, a view of how a man gets right with God. You understand that? Um, as a Pharisee, a Pharisee in this culture was the consummate insider. By that I mean he, he was viewed as being religiously re- correct. He was, um, he was a role model for others. He was a professional religious leader. Um, he was well respected and his position was the majority position. Um, he, um, he was a man who everything on the outside was, was, was clean and right and correct. So with people like that in mind, Jesus tells this parable. He tells it to a people whose only understanding of righteousness is a righteousness that was self-generated. He says that in verse 9. Oh, they're interested in in righteousness, all right. But they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He goes to the temple. He begins to pray. And as he prays, he starts out, and it really starts off pretty good. Oh, God, I thank you. Pretty good start. And from there, everything goes downhill. He marches right into the presence of God. And um, he prays a, a, a rather lengthy prayer. It's, it's lengthy, at least compared to the other guy. It's 33 words. And in those 33 words, he mentions the first person singular pronoun I five times. What does that tell you? What, what does that tell you about his religious position, guys? So impressed was he with his own righteousness, that he was actually announcing to God, I don't really need you. Standing by himself. Well, of course he was. Why? 
Well, because he, he doesn't want to get any of that filth of those, those other people on him. <laughs> oh, no. Let me tell you just a quick thing. Do, do you notice the word others in verse 9 and treated others? Do you see that word? The normal Greek word for others is the word alos. But that's not the word that's found here. It's a different word. It's the word loipas. And loipas means the rest. Um, It's a word that has more contempt in it. You see, self-righteousness. If the only source of righteousness you have is self, self-righteousness always leads me to look very poorly on the rest. When When you love self and you're proud of self, you despise all the, the rest. Because, very honestly, you don't compare very well with me. Um, gang, when, when self-righteousness is the only self-righteousness you know of, the inevitable companion of self-righteousness is a low view of everybody else. Those two go together. When I've got a high view of me, I've got a very high low of you, a high low view of you. When, when, when I have a low view of you, I know I've got a high view of me. Those two things, they, they go together. I'm not like them. And I am very proud of it. In verse 12, he begins to list all of his exceptional qualities and deeds. He says, well, I fast twice a week. Mosaic law only required once a year. So he, um, he out-Moses is Moses. I give tithes of everything that I get. Um, Jesus in another place said that they tithed all of their, they tithed all of their, um, their herbs and their spices. So if somebody gave him a stalk of fresh mint, he would count the leaves on it, and one-tenth of those leaves would go to, to God. You see, because of who I am and what I do, then God is obligated to me. Who needs a savior when you're as good a person as I am? In fact, all of this discussion of a savior makes me very nervous. I'm uncomfortable around all that talk. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, are you uncomfortable around the talk of a savior? Because if you are, it's very likely that you've never seen your need for being saved from anything. I'll save myself, thank you. What a good man I am. In that lengthy prayer, not one mention of sin, because for him, his idea is religion consists of starving my body, not my pride. His prayer starts off well, but he really had nothing to be thankful for at all. Actually, he wanted God to thank him. He expected God's approval for his very fine life. Guys, um, that's a religious position. That's the perspective of some. That's an approach. That's 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 a slant on how I get right with God. And it's pure Self-righteousness. 
Which brings us to the next guy in this parable. He's, um, he's a tax collector. D- don't think of a tax collector like you would think of a modern IRS agent. That's not what these guys were. Uh, a tax collector in this culture was a franchisee for the Roman government. He bought a franchise, which was a particular um, uh, geographical region, and he was then allowed to uh, squeeze all of the tax revenue that he possibly could out of that region with the support of the Roman government and the Roman army. Because that was his occupation, he was despised. He was considered a no-good, money-grubbing traitor. He was, a, he was a collaborator with the, uh, with the uh, Roman government. And if, um, he was, if he had lived in India, he would be considered a, an, an untouchable, at least by the, by the Brahmin. They, they, they didn't like him, and they wanted nothing to do with him. He was thus the consummate outsider. But both of these men go to the temple to pray. And in their prayers, you see a vastly different view of himself and a vastly different view of God. You know, guys, um, God's view of both of these men is the same. It's their view of themselves that makes everything so different. Um... He prays a very short prayer, seven words. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Guys, I hope I don't bore you for the next five minutes or so, but i got to tell you a couple of things about those seven words because they're really not reflected in the English translation, and and I, I don't want you to miss them. Guys, he prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The normal Greek word for mercy is the word elieo. In the Greek language, there are what they call a-o, e-o, and uh-o verbs. Well, this is an e-o verb, elieo, to be merciful. Um, that's the normal Greek word. That's not the word that you find here. You find the word hilasthete. It's a word that in its noun uh, version is the word hilasmos. Now, some of you have heard that word before. Hilasmos. In the Greek, stay with me, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, the word halasmos is translated mercy seat. You ever heard of that? The mercy seat was this slab of gold that laid on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and once a year the high priest came in and poured the blood of an unblemished lamb on it. When that word got picked up and brought into the New Testament, it was translated this way, propitiation. You know what propitiation is? It has to do with sin. When this man comes into the temple to pray, he doesn't simply say, hey, could I get a little mercy? He comes in, and the thing that is on his mind is his sin. God, is there any way that you can find a way to find to, to, to save a person as wicked as I am from my sin? He's not asking for small things, ladies and gentlemen. He's asking for forgiveness. Is there a way that you can find to forgive somebody as wicked as I am? 
Because God, the only hope I have is that you find a way to deal with my sin. Because if you don't provide a way to deal with my sin, I'm lost. The other thing I want to tell you, it says in your translations, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But the Greek text doesn't say that. The Greek text says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Gang, I, I, I do not know why that's not reflected in your translations. I can tell you it's in the Greek text. I looked, it's there. The definite article Toy is right in the text. The sinner. He's not saying, God be merciful to me. You know, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. And of all the people who are sinners, I just happen to be one of them. Because you know, God, everybody's a sinner. No, ladies and gentlemen, that's not what he's saying. He is saying, of all the people who are sinners, I'm the worst. God. Is there a way that you, can, that you can find to save not a sinner, but to save the sinner? Because of all of them that live, I'm the worst. Look at him, ladies and gentlemen. He stands afar off. Sure he does. Because he... He doesn't come talking about his rights. It says that he won't even lift up his eyes. Of course he won't. Because he, he knows of a God who's too holy to even look upon his iniquity. And it says he begins to beat his chest. Guys, do you see that? Do you see this contrast between what, the contrast that Jesus is trying to make between that man and the other one? It couldn't get any more stark. This, this, this tax collector doesn't, start, doesn't talk about his deeds. You know why, don't you? He didn't have any. The only deeds he's got are like mine. Bad ones. He doesn't speak about, oh, well, I, you know, I sinned Friday night because I drank too much. He knows that's not the problem. The problem is not that he did a bad thing. The problem is that he's got a bad heart. Could you, could, you, could you propitiate the sin of a, a man as wicked as I? Is there a way that you've got to change the heart of a man? Because that's my problem, God. My problem is not that I did a bad thing. The problem is I've got a bad heart. I sin because I'm a sinner. My sin didn't make me a sinner. No, 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 no. I'm a sinner, and that makes me sin. Is there a way... That you can be propitious towards a man as wicked as I. That's what he prays. The parable closes, guys, in verse 14 with Jesus giving you an answer. He gives you the verdict. And, and I want to say again, it's Jesus who gives the verdict. And he says... This one, this outsider, this despised man, this, this untouchable, this the sinner guy. We're told that he leaves and goes down to his house justified. 
Now, guys, I, I, notice he doesn't say, now, listen here, fella, you know, as soon as you get, uh, as soon as I see a little commitment on your part, you know, when I find that you're really serious about all this stuff, then, I, then I'll justify you. As soon as you go out and get baptized, then I'll, I'll, uh, you can be justified and go down to your house. As soon as I know that you're really going to really follow me, then, I, then I'll justify you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he says, on the basis of those seven words, this man goes down to his house justified. What is that? What is justified? Well, to be ever so brief, it's the most basic, fundamental gift of Christ's finished work on the cross. No one is in heaven today who is not justified. And no one is justified who does not go to Christ's cross to find it. Guys, there are no degrees of justification. You either are or you aren't. As you sit here today, you either are or you are not justified. If you want a better word, or or a word that I think we understand better, pardoned. He went home pardoned. He went home forgiven. He went home reconciled to God on the basis of seven words. Now, tell me this. um, Which of these two men do you most resemble? Um, Tell me this. When you pray, what does your prayer sound like? Does it sound more like the Pharisees or the tax collectors? I bet that you're all sitting out there saying, well, you know, what knucklehead would want to be like that, that, that Pharisee? No, 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 I, 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 I'm on the same team with that tax collector. Well, l- l- let me go a step further. Earlier, I mentioned that EE question, that second diagnostic question that we use around here so much. Let me use it again. It goes like this. Imagine you were to die tonight And you stood before God, and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would be your answer? Now listen. If your answer in any way points to you about who you are and what you've done, Do you know who you're most like? You're most like the Pharisee because that's exactly what he did too. And the Pharisee leaves the temple unchanged. He came in pride and he left in pride. He came believing he could save himself just like some of you have come this morning. And you will leave here believing you can save yourself, just like the Pharisee. The Pharisee came without a Savior, and he left without a Savior. And so will some of you. Guys, if you're saying to yourself right now, wow, 
I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee guy. I mean, uh, may I suggest this? You either are presently like the Pharisee or you once were. Because, guys, um, there are only two approaches to God. Either, either I come pleading my own righteousness or I come pleading Christ's righteousness for me. Every man or woman who is outside of Christ at this very moment is trying to save himself just like this Pharisee. Oh, my friends, the intolerable burden of self-righteousness. You know, it, it really only produces two things. It produces pride, thinking that I'm better than the rest, or it produces a despair of thinking, I can't keep this up. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that one of the clearest illustrations of the gospel is found in this parable because it depicts, it contrasts self-righteousness versus Christ-righteousness. It contrasts me as my own Savior and Christ as my Savior. It contrasts I did it versus he did it for me. The tax collector came to the temple the next day and he came as a forgiven worshiper of God. The Pharisee came to the temple the next day and he came once again to worship himself. Ladies and gentlemen, in 1970, a preacher visited my house, my apartment. I had been married about three months. And um, he asked me that question that I asked you twice. If you were to die tonight and you stood before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And that night... When that preacher showed up in my apartment, I already had a Savior. I didn't need the one he was offering because I already had one. Me. And I say to you, my friend, this very moment, either Jesus Christ is your Savior or you're trying to save yourself. Guys, um, many of you have heard um, the term the Magnificat. The Magnificat is a song. It's a song found in Luke chapter 1. It was the song sung by the Virgin Mary when she found out that she was pregnant with Jesus. And in the Magnificat, she says this. Uh, this is in verse 53 of Luke 1. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. This parable is about that verse. He has filled the hungry with good things, 
and the rich. He is sent away empty-handed. You know, you might be uh, sitting out there this morning thinking, gosh, um, that's an awfully negative sermon. Not if you're a tax collector. Not if you know your sin. Not if you know that the only remedy that's available for me is one that God's going to have to provide. And to be told that on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ, I'm forgiven, I'm pardoned, and I'm sent to my home justified is the most exhilarating, joyous, happy message we could possibly hear. What it says is simply, God found a way. He found a way to forgive sin as wicked as mine. And the way he found is in Christ. Only in Christ. Our Father, I do pray that you will cause us all to see that we are either people who resemble the Pharisee or we are people who resemble the tax collector. Either we are presently thinking our own righteousness will save us or we once thought that until somebody told us that only in Christ Jesus is forgiveness available. And so now, Father, we look back on those days of self-righteousness and shudder. But we are glad, very glad, that there is a Savior for people as wicked as I. Father, would you show it to somebody else this morning? Would you show the great beauty of Christ's finished work and the, um, the horror of thinking that I can save myself? Would you show somebody else that like you showed it to us? Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake.